Michael McClory, have you wished your mother a happy birthday today? You good? She did all the work. Okay. It's Michael's birthday. Right over there. Let's give him a, let's give him an embarrassing hand. An embarrassing hand. Who else's birthday is it today? Because you know, if you don't get everybody, there's going to be some offense created. Is it really? Get him in here. Romans chapter 6. I see a lot of uh, Oreos up in the troll booth up there. They're, they have Oreos now that are stuffed with peeps. The two most decadent sugar things in the world are now combined. Yeah, that's good news. It's good news for Brian and I. Right, Brian? It's good news for you and me. Don't judge me. I'm warming up. Let's go Romans 6. It'll take a couple of moments of silent readiness. Father, we step before your throne of grace to receive mercy to help in time of need. Our need is one of enlightenment. We can study all we want and study as hard as we can. But if it's not for your grace, we'll never have insights. So we pray that you'll grant us the opening of the eyes of our understanding tonight so that we can truly appropriate what it means to be in Christ. To another level, we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Tonight, we're kind of ironing out something that I began toward the end of the service last Thursday, and that sometimes is when everyone is starting to fade out. So I want to emphasize it again. The, The title is simply, The One Who Died, The One Who Died. And we begin with Romans chapter 6, verse 1. We're making sort of a foray into the heart of the ethical part of Romans. All of this is pretty much a preparation for what might be a future study of Romans, which either I will do or I will die and someone else will do. But this will be, this lays the groundwork for it. Romans chapter 6, my translation from the Greek text and with a lot of help from a lot of historical texts, what are we to say then? This again comes right off 520, where in the history of the Adamic race, where sin abounded, and it abounded all the more through Torah, the entrance of Torah into the side door, grace abounded much more. So what should we say to that then? Let's persist in sin. That means under the power of sin, or what Galatians 5.1 would call under the yoke of slavery to sin in order that grace would increase? Absolutely not, he says in verse 2. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? And he first hits us with that fact that we have died to sin. Then he explains that this is because we are in Christ. Verse 3, he uses the disclosure formula. Or are you ignorant? of the fact that as many as have been incorporated, and he uses the word baptizo here, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O, baptizo. And we could translate that as incorporate or baptize. So I mixed them up here. There's two baptizos in this verse. So I say in verse 3, or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Christ Jesus... 
have been baptized into his death. This is one of the great verses that introduces the idea of participation in Christ because we have been baptized or incorporated by the Holy Spirit into the history of Jesus Christ and into his downward trajectory where he descended from heaven and became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. And what we're finding out in Paul's gospel is that it's not just the cross or just the death of Jesus Christ that is salvific or saving or has atoning value, but his incarnation is saving and has atoning value. His life lived from 0 to 32 or 33 is having salvific or atoning effect. His obedience led to the extent of death by crucifixion, which we could say is truly probably at the heart of his atoning work. Then he was buried and on the third day resurrected. His resurrection has salvific and atoning value. His exaltation or elevation and enthronement, where he sits beside his father in the highest ultimate height, is also having salvific value. For the same apostle who says you died with him, said you were buried with him, said you were raised with him, said you were lifted up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. Our salvation is understood only under all of those ideas and not just his death. But important in this passage is his death and resurrection. Paul hardly ever considers the death of Jesus Christ without an equal weight placed on his resurrection. So, verse 3, or are you ignorant of the fact that as many as have been incorporated into Messiah Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, verse 4, we were buried with him through the baptism into his death. We are incorporated into his entire downward trajectory here, including burial. In order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, that indicates that the the life into which he entered is a glorious life, an everlasting life, an immortal life, an incorruptible life. He was raised up into an eschatological age, into a new age. He's the first one to bodily inhabit this new age. And we're all going to follow him. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we. And that indicates, I put this in brackets because it's an elliptical saying here. It's, there's an ellipsis, which means an absence of a phrase that you have to supply So we too, that is, having been raised together with him, may walk or conduct our lives in newness of life. For if we were united with him in a death like his, and we were, the first class fulfilled condition of that particle E, E I, for if we were united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The fact that we were incorporated into his downward trajectory is a guarantee that we are also incorporated into his upward trajectory. We know 
That means we know without a need for improvement of the knowledge. We know to the maximum. We know for sure. We know absolutely with confidence that our old man, let's call him paleo man or the Adamic man, was crucified with him in order that, I like what the complete Jewish Bible edited by David Stern says here in this. I'm more and more impressed with this Bible in many areas. But he says, in order that with him, was crucified with him, in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities, that captures the sense of it, in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities may be rendered ineffective so that we may no longer serve sin as its slave. That's liberation. That's why the great word that is dikaio, used pretty much in only in parts of Romans and Galatians where Paul is in combat against teachers with a different gospel. Dikaio, unfortunately, was there's another Latin miss associated with this, was sort of translated in the Latin as justitia, or dikaiosune was translated as justitia, and therefore, well, let's put that in the English as justify. And the assumption was that the righteousness of God, which is the key term in all of Romans, the righteousness of God, as it's called, dikaiosune theu, that that's a very poor translation, and it doesn't get it. The righteousness of God doesn't get it. Lexicons that we read don't, they subscribe to that. It's because they're influenced by another gospel. They're influenced by this justification theory. Dikaio, and if you've read or are reading or have thrown it against the wall yet, the book by Douglas Campbell entitled The Deliverance of God, here's the point of it. That's the translation for dikaiosune theu. The righteousness of God should be the deliverance of God. It is, therefore, the term for justify, dikaio, should have something to do with the word liberate or deliver in congeniality with dikaiosune theu. Let me just write it up here because this is really the heart of the whole book of Romans. Some people will look at Romans and say, okay, it says dikaiosune theu, so I'm going to entitle my whole series The Justice of God, or I'm going to entitle my whole series in Romans or my whole treatment of Romans as The Righteousness of God. Both of them miss the boat right from the start. So the boat's starting to sink right after it's loose from its moorings. That's the capital D, Dikaiosune Theu. Dikaiosune Theu, the great discovery of Douglas Campbell, the great insight that drove his quest for the Pauline gospel, and which we're following up in my own way. Dikaiosune Theu is literally and should be translated the deliverance of God. It has to do with an act that is divinely intentioned and divinely initiated and divinely completed in Christ and through Christ's faithfulness. And so if you're going to study Romans, probably a good study title for the whole of the book would be The Deliverance of God. And dikaio, therefore, that verb that is falsely and misleadingly translated, and believe me, it's a hard habit to break if you've been doing this for 40 years or so, is not justify, but deliver. And the idea is an unconditional deliverance an act of God in Christ. 
In one sense now, we could say that God has already acted in Christ to save the human race. God has already acted in Christ to rescue the human race from its desperate plight and to rescue the screaming creation from its slavery to corruption. God has already acted in Christ to bring this about, and it will be completed. We know that our old man, Paleo man, Palaisanthropos, was crucified with him in order that the entire body of our sinful propensities, not one by one each individual sinful propensity or sinful lust pattern that we all have, but the entire body of propensities, which we all have, it's literally the body of sin, may be rendered, we could say if we were going to use a military analogy, and Paul is fraught with military analogies in Romans 6, we could say that he renders that body of sinful propensities or to combat, incapable of combat, KIA, MIA, or something like that, that renders that flesh incapable of its enslaving power any longer. So, Are we supposed to say let's persist in sin when that's happened? That's insane. No, of course not. The Adamic man was crucified with him in order that the entire body of our sinful propensity may be rendered ineffective so that we may no longer serve sin as its slave. For he who died, there's the phrase, he who died, the one who died, let's call it that way. The one who died. This is nearly as significant as the one who's called Ho-Dikaios, which is called the righteous one, or even we could say the delivered one, because Jesus Christ is the one who was delivered out of death into life. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, we could say, Ho-Dikaios, from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Hodekaios, and that's in Romans one seventeen. Now, if we've already looked at this, but if you look at Psalm ninety eight, which is ninety seven in the LXX, especially verses two to three, you'll find words that are almost the same conglomeration of words as in Romans one seventeen. You'll find dikaiosune and soteria. You'll find dikaiosune almost equal to soteria or salvation or deliverance. You'll find the word apocalypto, that God reveals this salvific work to Israel in order that it may be seen by all the nations, the pagan nations. And that's what Paul is talking about, his call. He was called right in the state of death into life with Christ and told he's going to take the gospel to the pagans, the Gentiles, and he's going to bring about Obedience among all the nations. Quite a call. And so that again, there's a here's the word though, that he that died, he who died. The justification theory model usually puts that as some generic person. So it can be any believer who died with Christ and that it became real only when they believed. But he who died, as we've seen, and I've showed this already, but I want to iron it out a little more. That's the word... I'll just do the English transliteration. Apathanon, or in another place, ho apathanon. A-P-O-T-H-A-N, long O-N. Emphasis on the last syllable. Ho apathanon. 
he who died, the one who died. For the one who died, that's a pathanon, has been freed. I don't know, what, what does your translation say there? Just holler it out. Acquitted? Anybody else? Anything else? You have justify. Yeah, that's, you know why? It's because it's dikaiao. But the translators understood, right? At least in this place, it's strange because they don't realize it elsewhere. Like in Romans 3.24 or 5.2, they don't realize, or 5.1, they don't realize dikaiao has the sense of being freed or acquitted, not justified, but liberated. In fact, the modern Greek Bible actually uses the word for liberation instead of dikaiao. It uses the word eleuthero or eleutherao, which means to liberate, to free. And so that actually gives us the sense of what dikaiao means. It's a, it's a liberating deliverance. It's not a legal righteousness imputed when you believe. It's an unconditional deliverance given on the basis of the fidelity of Jesus Christ. That's, again, something that we have to, it's, not, it's easy to say, and it's easy to believe that, and it's easy to go on and say, yes, I subscribe to Paul's gospel, but that's not, I'm not going to make it easy. I'm going to go through the texts and robustly engage with them. So freed is a good translation here because that really captures what dikaiao means. It's not justify, but it's liberate or deliver from slavery. And so he, the one who died, has been freed from sin. Who is the one who died? Well, that's Christ. We're going to see that in a moment. And then verse 8. Now, if we died with him, apothanon, then be, describes us, the auditors of Paul's epistle in the first century and in the 21st century. Now he has this. He names us ap. E-T-H-A-N-O-M-E-N. Apathanomen. Apathanomen, which means we died with him. And then after that, apathanomen, it says soon, S-U-N. We died together with him. So in verse 8, now if we died with Christ, and we did, we have confidence that we will also live with him. Here we have S-U-Z-E-S-O-M-E-N. Live with, that's soon the preposition plus this word za'o. We will live together with him, with his life. And this we can apply to or we can correlate this with Ephesians 2.5. While you were dead in sins, you were made alive God made you alive together with Christ. Sudzo poeo, which is sort of like this word. Also in Romans 5, 8, through the obedience of one, the many or everyone receives the justification or the deliverance that is life. The deliverance that we have is the gift of a life that has come out of death to die no more. We have a life already comes out of death that has conquered death and sin. Now living with him, which he talks about here, this living with him has already begun, though it will surely and certainly and fully come to its consummation only in bodily resurrection. 
which happens in a moment and twinkling of an eye. It's an instantaneous transformation bodily, which happens at the parousia. That's why Paul boldly urges his audience in verse 11. We'll just skip there for a moment. He says, so you also account yourselves on the one hand to be dead to sin. That is to sin's enslavement. Why? Because you're in Christ, who is the one who died to sin. And that in dying to sin breaks the enslaving power of sin. So he says again, boldly, and you should boldly do this. You also account yourselves on the one hand to be dead to sin. That is to sin's enslavement. And on the other hand, to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. If anything describes our saved state, it's that little phrase, en Christo Jesu, in Christ Jesus. That is throughout Paul's epistles, not just localized in a few passages like dikaiao is in Galatians and Romans, and then once in 1 Corinthians 6, where it's combined with sanctification and washing and all the rest of the terms that describe our transfer into Christ. You know, it really doesn't matter at what point you are transferred into Christ. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. What really matters is when you realize what it is to be in Christ, the enlightenment that comes in Hebrews 10.32, the enlightenment of the eyes in Ephesians 1.17 and 18, of what it means to be in Christ. It's sort of a self-discovery. So people's testimonies where they have to locate the moment and the time and the rest is not necessary. So Paul urges his auditors, you are also account yourselves. That's an imperative. On the one hand, to be dead to sin, but on the other hand, to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the question is, again, who is this one who died? Many translations don't have the capital H-E. They'll have he that died or the one who died, and it refers to the generic Christian who believes rather than to the Christ by whose fidelity the human race was saved. This is, we're only beginning to fight on this one, still organizing the phalanx against that false gospel. The answer to this question of who is the one who died is found in Romans 8.34, where we discovered it last week. Look at it just for a moment. Romans 34, this is one time we get an answer plainly and bluntly to that question. Who is Apathanon, who is the one who died? Romans 8.34 reads like this. Who is the one who condemns? There's another character in this drama. Who is Hokatakrinon? Who is the one who condemns? Who's the condemner? According to the teacher's gospel, it's God. God's all about justice, retributive style which demands a coercive and violent retributive action on sinners, especially pagans, but even more so apostate Jews. God's all about retributive justice. Who is the one who condemns? Now, the one apathonomen, that's us, but the one who died is Christ. The one who died is the antithesis of the one who condemns. God is in the business of doing one thing, delivering the ungodly. God delivers 
the ungodly, the helpless, the incapacitated, the radically incapacitated. That's what he does. It's like the commercial. It's what you do. It's if you're God, it's what you do. Who is the one who condemns is the first question. Ho katakrinon. And then the way this should read in the Greek is not Christ Jesus, exclamation point. Or we could say Christ Jesus, hell no. Either way you want to say it. I'm trying to be proper and less vulgar. It's Lent now, so I gave up being vulgar. Well, I can do it if I want, damn it. So, you know, anyways, see how that contradicts? Never mind. Christ Jesus is the one who died. So who's the one who condemns? We could say maybe from Revelation, the accuser of the brethren. Or we could say some of his ministers who are called ministers of Satan, who are ministers of a so-called righteousness. And the answer right here, he is the one who died. Christ is the one who died. Who is the one who condemns? Not Christ Jesus, exclamation point times five. He's the one who died, not, not just the one who died, but the one who died for our sins. And the die to sin, which means died to break the enslaving power of sin, which he did only by becoming sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So who is the one who died in Romans 6.7? Christ is the one who died. He is ho apathanon, ho apathanon. Same word used in Romans 6, 7 is used in 8, 34. But Paul goes beyond. He's always going beyond, always going beyond. And more than that, he says, he has been raised. Paul just won't get off that kick. If he's going to talk about his death, he's going to talk about his resurrection. The one who died automatically is the one who came alive, always. Even when he says, I determined to communicate nothing among you but Christ and him crucified, the word crucified there means having been crucified with an emphasis on the fact that now he's alive. So the crucifixion yields always to the resurrection. The kind of life that he has is a kind of life that never existed before Christ came out of that tomb on Easter morning. It's newness. It's a brand new thing. We can't conceive of it. There's going to be a continuity of the kind of living in life and the joyous, the joie de vivre that we have in this life, if we have any, the happiness of living. That continues, but there's something spectacularly beyond the imagination that is always also added in the bodily resurrection. So who is he who condemns? Ho katakrinon. Who's the condemner? Not Christ Jesus. He's the one who died. And more than that, he's been raised. He's even beyond that at the right hand of God and... We could even say in a bracket, far from condemning us, he's actually interceding on our behalf. This is in radical agreement with John in 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin. That is, I'm writing to you so that you will not be enslaved to the power of sin. But if anyone sins, he ought to know that he has an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only. You know the rest, the sins of the whole world. 
So who is the one who condemns? Certainly not Christ. He died for us. Then he says, certainly not God. That is the father. Well, there's the father, the condemner then. Does Jesus have to die to protect us from a condemning father? Is the father a judgmental, wrathful God? (laughs) I don't think so. It says, is God the one who condemns? Certainly not. For God the Father, he only delivers. And if you go back to Romans 4, 5 from here, he delivers one class of people, the ungodly, the incapable, the depraved. Ask Paul. Certainly not God the Father who delivers the ungodly, meaning that's what you do if you're God the Father. You deliver the ungodly. That's because in the essential character of God, there is a benevolence that's unshakable, an illimitable kindness and benevolence, which we know as love. And the one who loves in this way loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever comes into a participation with his fidelity, that is, is incorporated into Christ, not only does not perish or stops perishing, Not only does he stop perishing, but he has the life of the coming age now. Why? Because God didn't send his son into this world to condemn the world. Who is he that condemns? Not God. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. But so that the world would be saved, delivered, rescued through him. God has already acted in Christ to rescue the world. And as we preach this, as we proclaim this, maybe some people realize this. The one who condemns then must be the teacher that Paul is combating throughout the first chapters of Romans and then on into a few passages in Romans 10. We've been remarking last night, and Brian Messick reminded me that Romans 1.18 to 32, for example, bears a stark resemblance to no biblical book but to an apocryphal book called The Wisdom of Solomon. So this teacher is rooted more in an apocryphal or non-canonical book, as is Romans 1.18 to 32. It resembles passages in this Wisdom of Solomon, and also in Romans 9 and other places. So Paul will allow him to say these things only so that he can shut them down. Now, this the next phase I want to go into, and this is not what... Douglas Campbell has done or is doing. This is what we're doing. And we have kind of a different approach because we just came off a four and a half year stint in the revelation of John or the apocalypse of John. And before that, three years in the gospel of John. So I'll just close this section off by saying the one who condemns must be the teacher himself whom Paul is combating. Or we could even say Behind that teacher, the one for whom he works, which is Satan himself, because that's because in Romans 16:20, Paul assures his auditors in the first and 21st century that Satan, whom God will shatter, will shatter, be shattered under your feet shortly. So what brings universalism into the picture? That's my phase. This is my direction. What brings universalism into the picture? What brings Christ into the picture as a universally saving Savior? I think 2 Corinthians 5 does. In 5.14, it says, He who died, 
died for all. And when he who died, which is Jesus Christ, died for all, then all died. Picture Paul seeing Jesus the Nazarene bearing the marks of his crucifixion. And Paul says, who are you, sir? And Jesus said, and this is, I think, how it came across, if we can put it in the sense of our modern speech. I'm Jesus the Nazarene. You know, the one you're persecuting. The one you're persecuting. Paul must have realized right then, this living person is the one who died. He's the one who died. And now look at him. He's alive, but with a kind of life I never imagined. With a kind of life that comes out of death. A kind of everlastingness to his life. So when you see that person, you say, what do you want me to do? It's the same with Abraham. Abraham wasn't delivered when he believed God, which is what Romans teaches. And he was called like Paul was. In the Ur of the Chaldees, his father was an idol maker. He was living in an idolatrous culture. And Yahweh appeared to him and says, get out of your father's house. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. He was called. And Abraham is going to be very figuring very prominently in Romans chapter 4. There's two ways of looking at it. And the better way is a more in-depth way. So where does universalism come into this picture or the universal saving significance? Second Corinthians 5.14, Paul said, I determined this, that if one died for all, and he did, of course, he died for all. Then all died, which pictures Jesus Christ in his singular representation of all the human race. When he died, all died. So we have to go here now. When he died to sin, then all died to sin in him. This is Paul's determination. I know, I called him. Better call Paul. I did. One, one, two, three, five, 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 five. Hello? Paul, what did you determine when you saw the one who died? Well, I determined this, that if he died for all, then all died. Which, what did that do to you then, Paul? Well, it changed my whole way of knowing. Once I knew people after the flesh, once I knew people in their Adamic ontology, even in Judaism, where we tried to cover the Adamic ontology with ritual and sacrifice, and I was in Judaism and my life in Judaism, and he wasn't attacking Judaism, but when I was in Judaism and not in Christ, I was persecuting the church of God. But I was blameless according to Torah. So there was a contradiction going on. So what did you determine when you saw the one who died? I saw him who died, died for all, then all died. So henceforth, I don't know any man after the flesh any longer. I even knew Christ that way once, but no more. Now I think this way. If any person is in Christ, there's the new creation in evidence. And he says, he goes on to say, all these things are from God. These are all things that have come from God's initiative and God's intention. Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. And he's given to me the word of this reconciliation, the announcement of this reconciliation. This is what you get when you talk to Paul. If all participated in his death, then all must participate in his resurrection and therefore in his own life. The everlasting, incorruptible, immortal life of the eschatological age is what we're talking about. 
the everlasting, incorruptible, immortal, glorious, and joyous life. Joy characterizes this life, but an exceeding joy that's unimaginable and indescribable. It's the life of the eschatological age, which Jesus Christ already bodily inhabits. No human being bodily inhabits this eschatological age. All human beings in Christ inhabit it, but not bodily. Ephesians 2.5 backs this up. Ephesians, as we will, I don't have to say this every time. I'll still say Ephesians, but you know I mean the letter to Laodicea. This backs this up by saying that while we were dead in sins, we were made alive together with Christ, with his eschatological life. And 1 Corinthians 15.22, which is a pivot in the gospel, says in Christ all will be made alive, just as in Romans 5.18, the obedience of the one man, that's the righteous one or the one who died, brings the deliverance consisting of life to all. The deliverance consisting of life which we see as the justification of life in Romans 5.18 in most translations should be the deliverance consisting of life to all. And that makes it congenial with 1 Corinthians 15.22. But here's the Rev the Book connection. We did that a little bit last night. I'll close with it tonight. There is a Rev the Book connection here too. So still we could ask and we could answer at the same time, who is he who died? Or the one who died. You might want to even look at Revelation 1 if you want and see this yourself. Who is the one who died if not the lamb who was slaughtered? What's the difference between the one Christ who died and the paschal lamb who has been killed in 1 Corinthians 5.7 and the lamb that has been slaughtered in Romans Revelation 5.6, the heart of Revelation. When Paul saw him and heard his voice, he was seeing the righteous one. He was also seeing the one who died, but he was seeing a living one who had died. That's the point. He was seeing a living person who had died, which is really weird in a wonderful way. It's weirdly wonderful. I think I'm probably going to say that when I'm instantly transformed into my resurrection body, I'm going to say, this is weirdly wonderful. This is wonderfully weird. And we'll never lose our gratitude. He who died is Christ. When Paul saw him, he saw and heard the one who died, the one who was crucified. And what Paul realized then, or at some point thereafter, is that when this one died, all the human race and Adam died with him in order to be made alive together with him. He who died or the one who died refers to the singular inclusive representative. We call him the sir the only living one who previously was dead and then made bodily alive again with an entirely new life. So new that to be in this life can only be described by Paul as the newness of life, the very newness. If there's something about this life that characterizes it, it's its newness. But the newness never wears off. That's the beauty of it. The newness never wears off. The one who died is Christ, who was crucified and buried, and who was also raised, elevated, and enthroned. Father says, come and sit by me. 
Jesus is therefore, we called him this in John, and this we should revive this phrase, the new regnant man. That's pregnant without the P, regnant, the new reigning man, the new regnant human being. And we are in him reigning in Romans 5.17. We are a kingdom of priests in Revelation 1.5, having been washed in the Lamb's blood which is a metonymy for his faithful death for us, followed by resurrection. Jesus is the new regnant man, and we are in him reigning. So when Paul saw the one who introduced himself as Jesus the Nazarene, you know, the one you're persecuting, the shock wave took three days to wear off. When he did, he saw and heard the righteous one. Acts 3.14 752, 2214, 1 Peter 318, compared with Habakkuk 2 4 and Romans 117, as well as Hebrews 10.38, where that passage is also quoted. In this then in Paul's thesis statement in Romans, Paul alludes to Habakkuk 2 4. Centralize that verse in your thinking, and interprets the righteous one to be Jesus the Nazarene, whom he saw and whom he heard speak to him on the outskirts of Damascus in Syria in 34 AD. This righteous one is none other than the one who died. He died in the faithful execution of his father's intention and of his father's initiative to save the world through him. He died in obedience to the father's intention and executed the father's initiative, which is to save the world through him. If God sent him to save the world and the son fully executed the mission, we must say that the mission was successful. Future history will simply be the unfolding of that success. Eschatology is the unfolding of that success. The coming of Christ in the clouds, where every eye sees him, will be the full realization of that which is already done. He died in the faithful execution of his father's intention and of the father's initiative to save the world through him. So his dying and death were the climax of his faithful obedience to this great intention and execution of this initiative of the Father. The one who died, died for all. But he who died also was raised from the dead, and therefore I would determine that he was raised for all. Romans 4.25 says as much. He was delivered over for our transgressions and raised up for our deliverance. Whose transgressions, if not all transgressions of all people, the whole world? He was delivered over for our sins. Whose sins? The whole world. He was raised up for our justification or unconditional deliverance. Therefore, Romans 5.1, being delivered by the faithfulness, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled. So he was handed over for our sins, which means he died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says as much, and he was resurrected for our deliverance, which means assuring our liberation from the enslavement of sin and death. So what was effected in Saul of Tarsus? What was created, what what was caused in him was what we might call an epistemological crisis. He came into a new way of knowing a new way of seeing people. This has happened to me. It's happened to some of you. 
if not all of you, a new way of seeing people, no longer in the judgmental view, but in the view of everyone is now perceived as being in Christ, or at least potentially being in Christ. It's an epistemological climax and crisis. So what was affected in Saul of Tarsus was a crisis of knowing by which an entirely new way of knowing came about in him and an entirely new determination to know. How can you convince someone of the truth you know without having in them a knowledge of the way you know? In other words, you have a way of knowing that you can't just transfer to someone else. God has to give them that way of knowing. So you can't go from your new way of knowing to someone in the old way of knowing and convince them of the new way of knowing because they're not going to have that new way of knowing until they have that new way of knowing. You can get the tape and listen to that and say, conclude either that he's really nuts or, oh, now I get it. We must remember that we're still fresh from a study of Revelation. That book began with an inaugural vision of one like a son of man. The book began with an inaugural vision in which John saw and heard. In fact, he heard first, then turned to hear the, see the voice, see the one who spoke it. Just like in that TV show, The Voice, they hear the voice and they turn around. They got that from Revelation. I heard this voice and I turned to see, you know. He was glad he turned around for that one because he wins all the competitions. So... That's a good show if you just listen to the singers. The coaches or the judges, they blather on about all this nonsense and you want to cut it off. Then never mind. Anyways, what, did, what happened when John turned and saw him? Revelation 117, this one like a son of man who's also the righteous man, righteous one, is also, I think we find, the one who died. He said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I became dead. (laughs) I'm the one that died. But look, I'm alive for the endless ages. Look, you can see the evidence of it bodily in me. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. So John, write what you see, what is, and what's about to occur. John's opening vision was then of the one who died, who said as much. I'm the one who died. The one who died is also the one who came alive from the dead into the new age, which he bodily inhabits right now, into a new ontology, a new way of being, a new way of knowing, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new epistemology, a new ontology, a new livingness as well. John saw the one who died and who is now endlessly, incorruptibly, immortally, gloriously, joyously alive. He then wrote what he saw of an apocalyptic revelation, which climaxed in all things being made new. Isn't that strange in revelation 21 five, all things are being made new when all things are in Christ for to be in Christ is to be the new creation. So when God makes all things new, it means he makes all things be in Christ where all things are new. This is now the revealed secret of the mystery of God's original intent to sum up, to recapitulate everything in Christ Jesus in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. God's intention only comes about by God's initiative. God's intention 
is the recapitulation of all things in Christ. And God brings this about in a Trinitarian Christocentric action for all of humanity and all of creation. So to be in Christ is to be made new. And all things have been made new in Christ. And this is God's doing. It should be, in Psalm 118, marvelous in our eyes. Again, the one whom Paul saw is the one whom John saw. He's the one who died. The only one who died the absolute death for sins and came alive again. This one said to John, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. And as Paul wrote in Romans 14, Christ both died and came to life in order that he would exercise control or lordship over the dead and the living. So this is in total agreement with one like a son of man in John. One like a son of man. Who is that son of man? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I was dead. He's the one who died. But now I'm alive. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So far from John being, and some have charged John with being antagonistic to Paul. They try to find verses in Revelation that seem to be saying the opposite of Paul. And that they had some kind of battle between each other. There's also scholars that like to say that Peter was the guy that Paul was after when he talked about the false teachers in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians. They try to put drive a rift between these two men. But John was entirely in agreement with Paul, hearty agreement. Both saw the one who died and came alive again, and both men wrote of a new creation in which all things become new in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15, Revelation 21.5. Both John and Paul then wrote of the crushing end, a crushing end of the present evil age. And of the rushing onset of a new messianic age. You can steal that. It's my, my phrase. This is my sentence. You can steal it. It's original. Both John and Paul wrote of the crushing end of the present evil age and of the rushing onset of a new messianic age. This age has not come fully into evidence yet. Please notice that. This new messianic age has begun because the Messiah has entered into the life of this age bodily. This age has not come fully into evidence yet. But as many as have been enlightened have an already new way of knowing already and a new way of living, which is affected by the renewal of the mind. That's where Romans 12, 1 and 2 comes in. So the last paragraph of thought I'll convey to you tonight is this coming into focus, which is my intent for this whole series. Coming into focus is a vision of Christ Jesus. In your own thinking, your own mind, your own imagination, your own heart. Coming into focus is a vision of Christ Jesus in an all-saving glory. Both in John's apocalypse and in Paul's epistles. In fact, taking shape already, and we're in our 41st increment. Last night was the 40th, and so I decided to use the 40th message to link up John with Paul. So in fact, what's taking place in BCP, or better call Paul, there is a perception of Paul's epistles in their totality, 
or what we call the Pauline corpus, as an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ as an all-saving Savior. This goes a step beyond where some of the teachers are coming up with, some of the scholars are coming up with a divine deliverance, God's deliverance. This goes a step beyond. This kind of takes us to a different area. My goal is to show this, however, not by just proclaiming it or saying that it's true, but showing that it's true by a robust and persistent engagement with those epistles. And I'm speaking of 10 epistles. I'm not dealing yet with the pastorals, although there is evidence in them of a universal, obviously, Titus 2, 11 to 13, 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, 1 Timothy 1, 15, etc. There's a universalism, 1 Timothy 2, 4 through 6. But we're just dealing with the 10 communal epistles. With this perception comes a whole new way of knowing for you, a whole new way of knowing. Why? Because the love of Christ begins to control us instead of sin and resantima and hatred and bitter envy and bitterness. Bitterness is probably one of the root sins and toxic sins of our time, a root of bitterness. The love of Christ controls me, Paul said, because I have determined this, because I have come to this judgment that if one died for all, then all died. Because I came to that judgment, the love of Christ now controls me as I view humanity, as I view mankind. I no longer know any person after the old way of knowing in the Adamic ontology. For if any person is in Christ, there's the new creation. And in one sense, all of humanity is in Christ, yet to be evidenced. So I'll close with this once again. Paul, what did this do for you? When you realized that the one who died, died to sin and was made alive to God and that we all were in him when he died, what did you realize? I realized that because one died for all, then all died. And that caused the controlling factor of Christ's love to grip me and take hold of me. And now I love all mankind. I owe a hearing of this glorious and wonderful truth to both pagans and barbarians, the two categories of Gentiles in Revelation. Romans, make that Romans 1.13 to 14. See how hard it is to break a habit. I owe a hearing. I'm indebted to pagans and barbarians because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation that is experienced by all who participate in Messiah's faithfulness. To the Jew first, because in Psalm 98, he does it to Israel in the sight of all the nations, and then to the nations. For therein is the deliverance of God being constantly revealed, unveiled before us, from faithfulness, that's God's demonstrated in Christ, to faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness participated in by the church. Thank you, Father, for the one who died. When we think of Jesus, then, we can't think of him apart from him being the one who died because when we see him, we see the very scars that are the mark and reminder of his death. And yet we see in him a kind of life that is fascinating and 
which we look at with utter fascination, a life that's come out of death, which we already share, but which we will only fully realize when we are in that bodily habit inhabitation of this age. We are already in that age, but we do not yet have that bodily embodiment of that age. Only one does, Jesus, and that's why we look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who allows us to participate in the faithfulness that he authored and brought to perfection.